0: gentlemen welcome to the godzilla pod war hour my name is michael kelly and with us as always mr nathan bear nathan thank you
1: thank you thank you very much this
0: evening's film is the 1962 toho classic king
1: kong versus godzilla
0: first of all one of my favorite godzilla movies ever
1: definitely one of the best uh directed by ashira honda definitely picks up as a franchise yeah it's where it balances uh, humor and violence right. and pulp science fiction all in one for us all to enjoy it
0: corrects so many of the wrongs from the previous installment in the series godzilla raids again it contains several of the best scenes in the whole series and shot in beautiful Scope. Exactly. It is it is shot, is the first time that either King Kong or Godzilla were in a color film.
1: Or a widescreen
0: film. Or a widescreen film, exactly. Up until this point, Godzilla had almost been shot in a style that was akin to a film noir. I mean, his depiction on screen, he was he's cloaked in the shadows. Almost all of his scenes, he was either underwater or it was at night. Yeah. So this was the first time you have Godzilla... In the middle of the day, out in the field, and you know, ready to rumble with Kong. And it it's, um, marks a, a drastic shift in tone for the series. Not drastic, but you can really see the series taking shape into what it would be known as. And, and this is really the film where that mold sort of locks into place. And uh, anyways, amazing film. The last time we saw Godzilla was 1955's Godzilla Raids Again. Much has happened at Toho since then.
1: Yes, much has happened. One of the big technological innovations, at least in the form of uh, media in the 50s, was television. Because of the fact that you could see images now in your own home, people were stopping, uh, or, excuse me, instead of going to the theaters, were watching television Instead, And movie theaters, both uh, in Japan and, of course, in the United States, had to find new ways to get people into theaters. They had to find new ways of making money. One of the big changes was widescreen, where you go from a square-shaped 1x33 3, 3 or three-seven aspect ratio to a much larger aspect, more rectangular aspect ratio, like uh, 235 by one so, this film was not only shot in widescreen, but in color. Uh, and the significance of this is that it is a way to lure people into seeing it. It is, uh, you know, on the posters, uh, many movies would say, now in widescreen, now in color. Black and white was still, though, very popular in Japanese cinema at the time. For example, Kurosawa, the same year, made Sanjiro, which is a sequel to Yojimbo, starring Toshiro Mifune. That was shot in black and white. That's a samurai film. Uh, Mikio Naruse, uh, the uh, ment- one of the mentors of Kurosawa and Ishiro Honda, uh, made Her Lonely Lane, with, uh, which was a uh, bio on the writer uh, Fumio Hayashi. Ishiro Honda made the film Goroth, which, unlike the previous films, was in color. Now, the difference is is that Goroth is a like Godzilla. You know, it's about a monster on a planet that's about to collide with Earth. This is pulp, science fiction, right. double, you know, the the end of a double bill. So if Sanjiro was playing, there's a chance that, you know, Ishiro Honda's Goroth is going to be on the, the bottom of a double it's bill. It's got a big there. walrus in it, right? Yes, it's got a huge walrus <laughs> on the planet. Because originally the plot of that was going to be It's just like, a planet with a giant walrus, right? Well, the planet, it's like uh, Armageddon, Michael Bay's Armageddon, which is a very underrated film. Uh, if i may if i do say so myself which we'll is let about that one to slide right. continue it's about to collide with earth <laughs> uh and so uh, uh, a team has to go onto the planet and blow it up now is is the planet being steered by the walrus with like his tusks I, <laughs> I i can only assume so but apparently <laughs> it's an evil walrus the, correct the, yes apparently the producers at toho insisted that this couldn't just happen the 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 planet could not just collide with a big planet. The planet had to have a walrus monster on it. So uh which they kill by shooting a laser at and you see it from high up with blood slowly dripping th- I see. from it. Well Subaraia um, was just
0: injecting giant monsters into everything at this point. Right? Oh yes, yes. I mean you have the Mysterians, which is an alien invasion movie, but it also has Mogera, which is this giant robot bird with like a huge <laughs> beer gut, basically. <laughs> Which is thrown in for, I'm going to say, no reason at all. I mean, absolutely, it's just like not necessary. But I, yeah. I believe, if you want to get technical, that is the first color kaiju, would be yeah. Mogera. That's like 55. I, right? Yeah, that's 55, the same as Raids Again. Widescreen. Things are cooking at Toho. Since Raids Again has come out, they've released The Mysterians. 1956, they released Rodan, which is a huge hit for them they keep on going
1: uh, 1961 mothra? mothra yes mothra, mothra. Comes out. so more so uh Shira, Honda and Subarai have been very busy creating monster films but this is where they bring back the two big guys exactly toho
0: has their 30th anniversary coming up and they want to do something big flashback over to America US of A you have Mr. Willis O'Brien the key special effects genius behind the original 1933 king kong and he has had a chip on his shoulder for 30 years he's wanted to revisit the character of king kong he wants to go back and make another kong film and he has this idea to do a script which he has written about king kong fighting frankenstein and he shops this around for a while he ends up meeting a producer named john beck now beck Convinces O'Brien to change the name of the Frankenstein creature to Prometheus, which, if you'll recall, is actually the alternate title. Of the original Mary Shelley novel is really? Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. Hmm. So the script changes now from King Kong versus Frankenstein to King Kong versus Prometheus. And John Beck, he, he takes this to Warner Brothers. He takes it to Universal, and uh, they are not keen on doing it they say the special effects are going to be too expensive willis o'brien of course is insisting that everything is stop motion yes (laughs) and um so john beck sort of behind willis o'brien's back in a very sneaky move starts shopping the script around to international studios and this falls into the lap of toho whose 30th anniversary is coming up and subaraya one of their key special effects guys is completely obsessed with King Kong, as we have gone over in exhaustive detail on this program. <laughs> so they get wind of this, like, what, what, what? You, you want to make a, another King Kong movie? You want us to make it? Yeah, of course, of course, of course, we'll make this. So, um, and and so John Beck tells them the script behind Willis O'Brien's back. Yeah, and this is devastating. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is Willis O'Brien's brainchild, and. John Beck just sells this to Toho behind his back. Sells them the script behind his back. And so now you've got Toho making King Kong versus Prometheus. But they're like, well, you know, it's our 30th anniversary coming up next year. Let's bring back one of our monsters. Who who have we not used in a while? Let's say we've got Mothra. Uh, You know, we just had a Mothra movie. It doesn't quite work out that well. You know, Rodan is more of a bird, not quite humanoid. Well, who who else do we have? Oh, hey, does anyone remember Godzilla? (laughs) Yeah, I think we haven't seen him since Godzilla Raids again. Boy, that movie sucked. Sucked. That movie was fucking... What the hell were we thinking about with that deal? Um, So, yeah, we haven't made a Godzilla movie in eight years. Let's uh I think it's about time to bring him back. We could shoot it in color. This could be this could be good for us. We'll get the original guys back. And this is what they do. They they go into production on King Kong versus Godzilla. They get the original creative team back together from, from the first Godzilla film, including of course Inshiro Honda in the director's chair, Subaraya doing the special effects, Fukube doing the music, Tanaka producing. Yes. And it's, you know, it's a it's a huge production, and it goes forward basically without a hitch. Because Toho makes this in Japan, they have exclusive distribution rights, but they don't have any of the rights for um, international territory, so they sell it back to John Beck. He produces the American version, and this is the next step in the Americanization process that you get... The most dramatic version was the original Godzilla, where you actually have, you bring in Raymond Burr for several scenes and kind of weave him into the plot of the movie. And then Raids again sort of mishmashes everything around with the ridiculous narration. This is the next gradation down towards really attempting to present the original film as much as they can. You still get the scenes from the United World News with... uh, With the sort of that were shot in three days, they're getting closer and closer to just stepping back and just showing the movie.
1: Yes, and I think since the, uh, well, I mean, there's only been one film in between, but I think this has probably been one of the more at least tasteful redistributions of a Godzilla film. Just, I mean, with adding of American scenes, I think that this one was done well. They tried to make it as seamless as possible. There are moments where it just doesn't work. But overall, they really tried this time. Yeah. (laughs) There's actually, you could tell some effort was put in because they were like, hey, we could make money off of this if we do it right. Right.
0: And they did end up making some money off of it. It it was released and it ended up generating um, worldwide in 1962, 16 million dollars adjusted for inflation would is close to 130 million dollars today. So that's about the size of the hit. It's still one of the largest grossing or I believe the largest grossing Godzilla f- film in the entire series, probably, which is pretty awesome. And it's it's interesting that it's you know, when it was being made, people thought of it as a King Kong movie. King Kong gets top billing. It's King yeah. Kong versus Godzilla. When it was distributed to Italy it was the triumph of King Kong in France it was the return of King Kong it was all of the stuff focused on Kong and no one really cared about Godzilla anymore because it had been nearly a decade since the original and they had sort of forgotten about it so it's very interesting that you know this King Kong wins the fight at the end and this is not the, the myth that there are two versions of the end of the film where Godzilla wins the Japanese version because in Japan everybody loves Godzilla <laughs> and the American version Kong wins. Well, this is absolutely untrue because at the time that this is made, King Kong was just more popular in Japan. Yeah. And, and so like he was the hero and Godzilla was still very much the villain. So it, it actually makes perfect sense when you look at it that way
1: that Kong yeah. would win. Godzilla does not become anything close to a heroic figure till, well, for about a year. It's two films later in Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster where there's a shift, but we'll get to that when we get to it. So, John Beck gets this movie back,
0: and he edits out a few of the scenes. He edits out about, I'd say, eight minutes worth of stuff. Unfortunately, it's a lot of stuff that that, that, uh, sets up who the main characters are what stuff like their names yeah. uh their jobs yeah. their relationships to one another uh, so when you're watching the american cut all of that is pretty fuzzy yeah. uh the, the main Ooh. character which i guess would be sakurai does not even get named for a full 20 minutes into the film mm-hmm. so that's a that's a bit confusing but the music I wanted to hit upon uh, real quick. the uh, So Akira Fukubei, I have seen both cuts. Mm. I've seen both the Japanese and, and the American version. And I am of the opinion, Fukubei does a very serviceable job. And there's a couple of pieces uh, from this score that I would put among his most stirring and some of his best stuff. But I still... You know, it tears me to say this, but I still have to give it to the American soundtrack. Because I I just, that's the one I grew up with. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's more stirring and it it fits the action better. But here's the problem with the American soundtrack. It doesn't actually exist. (laughs) What it was, was a bunch of stock music from a series of different films that they sort of Frankenstein together. And by they, I mean, there was a gentleman by the name of Peter Zinner, who was the music editor on this, and he took pieces of scores from eleven different films, and he kind of stitched them together. I'll just—I have the list of them right here. Uh, the majority of these are from a, a, a composer named Hans Slater. But, anyways, here we go. So, these are some of the films that the music from the American version of King Kong versus Godzilla actually comes from. There's an Errol Flynn movie called Against All Flags. There's a haunted house movie called The Empty House, Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, Bend of the River, which I can only assume is a western of some kind, Untamed Frontier, The Golden Horde, uh, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, Man-Made Monster, While the City Sleeps, The Monster That Challenged the World. So a lot of, you know, uh, very eclectic mix. You've got some swashbuckling movies in there. You've got uh, quite a few monster movies and some that sound like westerns. It also uh, contains music from the trailer. The trailer music for the film This Island Earth. Yes. Again, not the music from the movie. (laughs) Just the music from the trailer. And also he took some music... From a television show called Wichita Town, which is apparently pretty short-lived. So all of these things, and for years, people have been trying to find this score. Of course, it does not exist in uh, normal terms. So what has happened, and I, I did some research on this, and relatively recently, within the last year, people have finally been piecing together all of these these sections of music, all these different cues and reconstructing them and sort of rebuilding the soundtrack of this movie. So now if you go on YouTube, you can find where people are actually recreating the tracks as they appear in the movie. And some of the tracks will have two or three different pieces of music fit in together. So it just shows you the insane amount of devotion and people are getting these pieces of music from like, you know, they're somehow taking, getting them from LPs that, yeah. that they find from these movies. Some some of these movies date back to the 40s, you know? So it's just like, it's crazy. And the music editor on this, Peter Zinner, he al- also helped re-edit scenes from the film, along with the writers. Because, of course, there was no real film editor for the film, because it had already been cut by the Japanese editor. And so Peter Zinner edited the music, and then he also helped edit... The you know the scenes together and the actual film itself went on to have a fairly successful career in Hollywood. He ended up being a three-time Academy Award nominee. His credits include The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, and The Deer Hunter, for which he won the Academy Award for Best Film Editing. This is the guy who did the music editing a King Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> It is crazy when I found that out, I was just like i I don't what do you even say to that um, so yeah that that to me was pretty insane and it's always funny watching these American versions because it's like you know where the opening credits start, the person who gets top billing in the movie, not any of the Japanese actors no, it's no, 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 Michael no. Keith, yeah, the <laughs> guy who plays Eric Carter from United World Newts. Now, they filmed the stuff for United World News in like three days yeah. in like a soundstage in Hackensack, New Jersey or whatever. <laughs> and like, there's no way Michael Keith should be getting top billing in this
1: movie. Especially when uh, the Japanese version is filled with well-known yeah, Toho actors. regulars, you know. Because right. uh, Toho, like uh, most other uh, movie companies at the time, still had contracted actors, which is why when you see films from, you know, MGM, Republic, or... Warner Brothers or Universal, you see a lot of the same people, even if the subject matter is completely different. The film was released,
0: and I think it's the archetype of not just Godzilla movies, but like the big showdown films, where it's like every time there's two titanic forces that collide, you hear about... Like this film's title gets thrown around. A relatively recent example would be in Fast and the Furious Part Five, when the scene where Vin Diesel and The Rock fight, people say like, "Oh, it's like King Kong versus Godzilla," you know. Mm-hmm. Or when Freddy and Jason fight, a uh, lot of thing when that film came out, I heard it's like this is a, you know not since King Kong versus Godzilla yeah. has this. So it's like people still remember this film. I, I remember when The Lost World was coming out seeing a behind-the-scenes interview with Jeff Goldblum, he was talking about how excited he was to be in Jurassic Park and The Lost World because he remembered when he was a kid going to see King Kong vs. Godzilla in the theater and, like, everyone going insane, you know? Yeah. It was, like, one of his most prized memories from childhood. So, definitely had a huge impact. I remember when I first found out that this movie existed, like, my brain... Exploded Because, you know, I was already very familiar with who King Kong was. Sort of like one of those first primary characters, like, you know, King Kong and, like, Superman and, like, Star Wars. It was all just, like, this is, you know, one of the first things that imprint on my brain. Mm-hmm. In fact, I even had a, um, like, a puzzle that was, like, King Kong and Superman fighting, you know. <laughs> I- I'm sure it wasn't, like... Called King Kong was probably like you know enraged giant ape versus Superman because <laughs> they didn't want to get sued. But you know it, it, was, it was it was King Kong, and uh I had just sort of started finding out about Godzilla, and then I found out that this movie existed. And I'm like, this is in- like I I can- I literally cannot believe that this movie exists. You know because you can't actually have there is no King Kong versus Superman yeah movie. But there is a King Kong versus Godzilla.
1: Paradise, where sensuous offer themselves in ritual sacrifice to his brute embrace. Godzilla has a brain about this size. He is sheer brute force. While Kong is a thinking animal. His brain is considerably larger. About ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla Heading for their colossal collision Shattering every obstacle that stands between them In the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground Holding a beautiful girl in his grasp See Godzilla destroy an entire army see king kong hacked by the blazing barrier of a billion volts but nothing nobody can stop the great showdown when king kong and godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest
0: Right off the bat, the American and Japanese versions are the the first shot. It's, it's, it's really interesting what they do with it. Of course, there's the opening titles. Um, if you're watching the American version, you're, you're very interested to, and keen on finding out about Michael Keith's performance because he's top billed. Yes, and uh, played uh,
1: over by the lovingly racist Asian music that's Yeah,
0: that's from the over. that's from the Golden Horde. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is the music is as racist as the title, so it's a good match. <laughs> the amazing thing about that piece of music is John Beck did not want Akira Ufukube's music because he thought it was too his words, oriental. Ah. Uh which so he replaced it with the theme from the Golden Horde, which is Seven thousand times more like stereotypically oriental i don't know what the what he was thinking about um anyway, so like he was completely wrong there but uh so the so the opening credits start and then you just see planet Earth, and so it's like from outer space and then it kind of zooms in on you're like this scale of this movie it's like you have to you know we're, we're on a planetary scale here yeah. like this that's how big. You know, some stuff's going down here. Clash of Titans. Clash of Titans, you know. The, you know, world, like the world Yeah, exactly. The world is at stake. It's like, we show you, like, these are the stakes. This is the whole planet. And then it zooms in. And in the American version, it just says, it has the quote from, from Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth ratio than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Which is very sort of strange and enigmatic. And then it just sort of you know fades out, and then it fades into to Eric Carter from the United World News, and he talks about you know submarine Seahawk and and so forth. The Japanese version it zooms in on the planet, and some guy starts talking about we just take gravity and the Earth spinning on its axis for granted, but what if it stopped? We'd we'd all be in trouble. And then this guy steps in from the side, and he's like. That is why you should watch our show, you know,
1: super weird, crazy tales or whatever. Sponsored by? Pacific Pharmaceuticals. That's the big thing about Japanese movies. Usually the evil or humorous corporation is either a pharmaceutical company or a maritime insurance company. Those are like the two big (laughs) companies in these movies. Either pharmaceuticals or maritime insurance. You know, can't, can't have a movie like this without one of the two.
0: So Pacific Pharmaceuticals is funding this TV show, which apparently is like 400th in ratings or something. It's just like... <laughs> so it's the NBC of Japan. Yeah. The the, the gentleman in charge of uh, advertising, I believe, is, is a gentleman by the name of Mr. Taco. And uh, he is infuriated with the show's lack of business. So he gets a brainstorm after the scientist comes back from this island that's near New Zealand. He says it's off the coast of the Bougainville Islands and uh, he procures these berries that he calls Soma and you mix them together and I guess it makes... it's. It's never really discussed what Soma does other than, I guess, it knocks out Kong. It it makes you drowsy. It makes you drowsy, so I guess it's like a sleeping aid. Yeah. Hopefully when used in extreme moderation, because I have a feeling if if it's enough to knock out
1: King Kong, (laughs) it's probably enough to kill, like, a human being. The but, American version—they make sure to mention that it's non-narcotic, yeah. non-habit forming. Yeah, yeah. The,
0: Eric Carter is very quick to mention it's very—it's not uh, habit forming.
1: It's happy juice. It's happy juice, basically.
0: <laughs> so he's like, also, there is a giant god on this island. The doctor or the professor tells Mister Taco, "Yes, so I got the berries, and all, yeah, well, you know, there's a giant god on the island that I never saw, but the natives talked about constantly." So Taco's like, "That's what we need." Need to get a giant monster and put it on our show that will boost the ratings. As you can tell, Mr. Taco is insane. <laughs> he is basically a cartoon character. It's basically like what if Inspector Clouseau was inserted into, and not like normal Inspector Clouseau from like the first Pink Panther movie, but like. Clouseau from like the third or fourth Pink Panther mm. movie, where the laws of reality and physics are starting to change around him in order to facilitate cheap sight gags. Yeah,
1: just like... that
0: level of like goofiness <laughs> is in there, and that's more prevalent in the Japanese version. A lot of that stuff was cut out of the American version.
1: And what a loss that was.
0: Yeah, I mean, seriously. The Japanese cut that I saw, I was laughing out loud at this stuff, and it's you know I'm very desensitized to comedy, and like I, I so it's it's got to be pretty funny in order to make me laugh, and the stuff he was doing was very sort of sly, like physical comedy
1: and kind of slick stuff. So it was just, uh, such an animated actor, I just or the character itself is just so. Animated and like you said, Clouseau like, you know, just the the... just like a buffoon, but thinks he's
0: smarter than everybody else, but really isn't.
1: And with Charlie Chaplin like sight gags, yeah, just like just
0: like you know, picking up the phone and talking into the wrong end, and like you know, and then like it's his boss, so he like has to bow to the phone or whatever. just like you know, so there's that, that sort of range, and then there's stuff like he'll just get like. An umbrella and pull it out of, like, nowhere yeah. for no reason at all. So he can, like, produce props yeah. out of thin air because it, like, helps the joke.
1: Sponsored by Pacific yeah.
0: Pharmaceuticals. <laughs> so that's Taco. He's basically my favorite character of the movie. And, you know, what a guy. He orders, uh, basically, our two heroes who I believe, okay, you've got Sakurai, who I don't know what he does does in this movie i think he's either an actor or he is like a ad pitch man for pacific pharmaceuticals he, he's
1: basically the john ham of pacific yeah, pharmaceuticals. yeah because, because a, in the beginning DeAndre they
0: person. show him doing a commercial where he's like playing the drums and acting all wacky and like so he's on tv and like doing whatever he can and his his buddy Faru kind of comes up to him and is like Almost acting like an agent. Like, almost like, you know, well, we'll do whatever we have to to, you know, try and get you further or whatever. So I don't quite know what their positions are, but they definitely work for Mr. Taco.
1: Yes. and Um,
0: uh, Because they're both excited about the meeting with him. Out of the meeting with the professor guy, they end up going to the... Faroe Faroe Island. The the plan is formulated that they are going to go to Faroe Island to (laughs) to get more of these berries and investigate whether or not there is a giant god there. (laughs) And if he is there, capture him and bring him back to Tokyo to put on this show to get good ratings for the show. That's a pretty solid plan. Yeah, very, very. No problems there.
1: It's a good thing they they went to the right Fair island and not the one that Ingmar Bergman was living on (laughs) because they they would have lost ratings like that. Exactly.
0: (laughs) While all of this is happening, U.S. submarine Seahawk, a nuclear submarine, is near... Tokyo... Well, not near Tokyo.
1: It's uh, It's, in the north. It's in uh, the north. Hokkaido, the uh, northernmost uh, island of Japan. Or the the biggest... It's like a few hundred um, miles
0: away from Hokkaido. Yeah.
1: I would think. Which, uh, coincidentally, is around the area that Godzilla uh, was last seen in
0: 1955. Yes. Uh, If you all remember after kubiyashi sacrifices himself for absolutely no reason at all at the end of Godzilla raids again and then everyone buries Godzilla in ice he's been frozen basically in this iceberg island well it was like an island at the end of raids again but now it's just like an iceberg or yeah. like it's melted it's a floating it, thing. It, yeah within the last 8 years it's lost like 90% of its mass but like Godzilla is still it seems to be melting around the living thermonuclear reactor that's trapped inside of it, which, whatever. Just that like is, the
1: Atkins diet.
0: Just like the Atkins <laughs> diet. <It's> no problem. <laughs> Best not to think about it. Anyway, so what I have to say about the, the U.S., uh, the submarine Seahawk, which is carrying with it a collection of some of the world's greatest scientists. Who so,
1: uh, all speak pigeon English. Who
0: all speak pigeon English. And this is... Fascinating. This is where one of the uh, huge differences between the American version and the Japanese version, because for years, when I was watching the Americanized version and when they started showing the scene in the Seahawk, which, you know, of course, it's all um, American looking, you know, I should say, sorry, because it's the 60s. (laughs) They're all Caucasian. They all sound basically normal, you know? It's like, depth at 25 meters, you know? Like, sort of, they all kind of have the A, you yeah. know, like, Brooklyn accents. The hey, captain hey. the captain has, like, down periscope, you know, his very commanding voice. Then when you watch the Japanese version, you just assume they're all going to have the same voice because they're all speaking English. This, This is when you realize that all of those voices even though they're all speaking English have all been dubbed again in English so when you hear what the original actors sound like it becomes instantaneously clear that these were people who were just living in Tokyo at the time who could barely speak English that were taken in because they look American (laughs) so like like... at one point first of all this captain is not a good captain (laughs) of a sub because the way the scene plays out the sub just crashes straight up <laughs> into an iceberg. They're just sailing along, and all of a sudden, completely out of the blue, they do the Star Trek, you know, they all kind of get knocked out of their chairs, and then it just cuts to a wide shot of this sub-raid embedded into the side of the
1: iceberg. It's like, did, couldn't you guys see this iceberg? Yeah, uh, uh, Is that like the point of sonar right. and periscopes, so you don't <laughs> do stuff like that.
0: Exactly. So, like... Not a very good crew. They, they almost, and I almost think it's, maybe they're depicted intentionally to be idiots because they're Americans. I mean, they, they end up being, like,
1: the way it's felt, they, they look kind of stupid. Uh, coincidentally, another film at Toho, uh, directed by Ozu, who normally works for another theater, but that's another story. Uh, the, the, the daughter in that movie is dating an American, who is this big, lumbering, tall, blonde, blue-eyed guy who bows very awkwardly? Yeah. I, I'm bowing towards the microphone right now because I know you can all see me. Uh, he bows awkwardly towards the mother, and you know uses his very awkward but powerful <laughs> Japanese. The "Ohayo gozaimasu." Yeah. So, so this is how Americans are perceived through Japanese.
0: <laughs> and the, just the crew of the submarine is so like what. Your water starts flooding out of uh, sort of a hole in the ceiling or whatever, and you you hear someone say, coming around down there or whatever," and you're you're thinking to yourself, "What?" And then the captain of the submarine literally says, "What?" Like that though. What? Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. What? completely inappropriate for like someone who's supposed to be leading these guys it's... in a military scenario or whatever. It's just like, yeah, okay. So that's that's pretty amazing. They 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 crash the sub <laughs> and <laughs> then you know, Godzilla basically wakes up from his icy tomb and I will give the scientists credit because they start to hear Godzilla's roar for the first time, and this is the first time we hear the classic Godzilla roar that would be used until, you know, for the next probably 9 or 10 years. It does change a little bit once you get into the 70s. But, you know, this is his. This is the first time you hear that sort of iconic roar, which is pretty awesome because it has been changed from the original Gojira, and it is also no longer Anguirus's roar from, yeah. <laughs> you know, they are actually using Godzilla's roar again. So... They hear this roar, and one of the the top scientists points to the ceiling, which is now erupting into flames, the ceiling of this submarine, and he just says... Underwater. Underwater, (laughs) and he says, Gojira! It's Gojira! So it's like, they instantly know it's Godzilla, which is like the most normal reaction that anyone has in these movies it's like if i lived in the world where godzilla existed and all of a sudden stuff like this started happening and i heard heard a giant monster cry and i saw flames coming out like it it obviously is godzilla (laughs) you know like so that is a very logical scene and this again this is interesting one of the things i'm interested in covering over the course of this podcast is sort of the insane continuity of this series and it, it gets busy right away with this one where, you know, right off the bat, uh, if you watch the Japanese version of this movie, it's like, oh, it's Godzilla. The Godzilla, they all remember mm-hmm. like the stuff from the 50s or they, they, ne- they never actually talk about the events of Godzilla or Godzilla Raids again, but they all know and they just instantly call him Godzilla and, you know, that's... that's you,
1: they know it's him. Whereas Uh, in the the, American American version, version, they know who he is and yet the scientists at the UN talk about him as if it had never happened before. Right.
0: There is no reference
1: to the stuff Which is confi- from the original yeah. films. Which is really confusing because the guy in the helicopter, as soon as Godzilla, breaks through the ice and makes his entrance. You know, I have just blown up a submarine. They're like, oh, it's Godzilla. Right, yeah. They point to him and say, so are we thinking then in the American version,
0: did that helicopter pilot name Godzilla? You know, it's yeah. like, <laughs> because, you know, that's
1: the,
0: that's like the first time. So it's, it's very strange. The next scene... They are on Faroe Island, mm-hmm. looking for this giant god,
1: and they've uh, met the natives. They've uh, met the and natives, given them the best of Western civilization, including a radio and my personal favorite, the cigarettes. Yes, that is <laughs> that that I've remembered that ever since I was a kid. You know, just as the classic Godzilla East meets or, or not? Well, just... East meets primitive just, uh, just.
0: just just a shockingly awkward scene where they give a little kid some a cigarettes cigarette. you know and they give the whole the whole tribe uh, cigarettes and, and
1: you know what I, I bet if this had really happened people would do the same thing right i've seen stuff like this in documentaries where people where you know crazy white people go on like safaris (laughs) to new guinea where they meet the natives uh who are wonderful people and they hand them cigarettes right you know trying to be like oh try this it's the the best of our civilization yeah they hand them they hand them
0: the junk food or whatever it's like oh
1: the aboriginal people
0: are ready to kill us wait i've got a bag of funyuns here (laughs) (laughs) let's uh you know and they they make peace with it and that's what happens and they live with the tribe for about a day, day and a half or whatever. Yeah. And then once you know it, a giant octopus shows up, starts futzing with the works, okay? And who comes to the rescue? And by, by the way, this is a real octopus they got. It's a, it's, you know, It's a small octopus filmed against miniatures, so it looks absolutely authentic. During the filming of this scene, it's pretty amazing, they used four octopuses... They let three of them go, and then Subaraya kept one of them and had it cooked for his dinner that night. Which I think is like, that's the that's the greatest story ever. The octopus is attacking the village, and King Kong comes around. You hear his roar, and he comes to save the village, and he beats the shit out of the octopus, which is sort of weirdly not very fulfilling or to watch because the octopus doesn't seem really defeated he just sort of like it's like you know you kick a slug and the slug yeah. still crawls away it's like well did I hurt the slug's feelings yep. I don't know yeah. it's hard to tell so Kong defeats the octopus and then proceeds to get blackout drunk by drinking these giant barrel sized containers of Soma they they keep the Soma around for this express purpose <laughs> Because uh, I guess this is happening like every three or four days. Kong is just storming his time, like, I gotta get him drunk again. And then, you know, they have this sort of dance and this, this song uh, that they do to, to make Kong fall into a very deep sleep. That's pretty much the last scene on the island. The next time you see Kong, he is on a raft, a giant raft, which we're assuming... That the people from Japan forced the villagers to build at gunpoint, maybe?
1: Yeah, I, I, that's the only thing I can assume, because <laughs> we never go back to the island. Yeah,
0: because it's a pretty big wrap. <laughs> it's significantly bigger than Kong himself. It looks like it would have taken about four months to construct, but, you know, whatever. And it's lined with dynamite, conveniently. <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, that's the last you see of Faroe Island. In the meantime, Godzilla has made landfall. You've had the standard scene of the military attempting to defeat him, at which point he melts all of the tanks and sort of runs amok or whatever, and everyone's just sort of slapping their heads. (laughs) They don't know. They need a solution. (laughs) Cut back to Kong. Now, we should say that uh, Sakurai and Faru are on like an ocean vessel, bearing vessel that's dragging the raft with Kong on it. I hope they factored that into their fuel demands for the <laughs> return trip. It's no problem. Taco gets airlifted in and he's like, hey, it's wonderful! It's King Kong! And this is also fascinating. It's like, okay. King Kong was clearly killed at the end of the original film. The yes.
1: 1933 movie. Yeah, I mean, he fell but, off the Empire fucking stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he,
0: he is definitely dead. His son was also killed at the end of Son of Kong. You know, spoiler alert, but you know, uh, it's kind made of Made excellent
1: deal, though.
0: Um... But all of the characters instantly refer to him as King Kong, you know? And, like, everyone on the news is, like, reporting. It's like, oh, King Kong's been found or whatever. Or, you know, it's like the enormous creature known only as King Kong. Like, it's like, where, who, like, how are they calling him King Kong? And by, the only thing I can think of is that everyone in this world has seen the movie King Kong. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's their only other, you know, exposure. And it's just sort of like everyone instantly starts calling him that, and it's just, it makes no sense at all. But it's awesome. Once again, something happens that makes some sense. Some guy comes on an additional party, I think like the the The, naval... Yeah, the... The the Tokyo, or the Japanese naval... Defense uh, force. Defense force dispatches a couple of ships from their fleet. They meet up, they intercept uh, Pacific Pharmaceuticals craft, which is, of course, again, dragging Kong slowly (laughs) towards Tokyo, and the guy's like... Reads this letter from the the government. The government just saying, yeah, the Japanese government says you can't just bring a giant monster to to Japan. <laughs> you know, that's like going to break free immediately and just destroy everything. Taco is extremely upset that the government will not let them bring Kong in, and uh, <laughs> so they they're like, all right, and they go out to the back of the boat. Taco accidentally falls on the igniter for the dynamite. Which is one of those sort of handle push that goes down into a wooden box, you yeah. know, from the Warner Brothers cartoons detonators. <laughs> so uh, that's just a Wiley Coyote. That, yeah, <laughs> that's just yeah something Wily Coyote would use, and it's just sitting there. And Taco's like you know fighting with his subordinates that he like a moron just like lands on it and tries and like you know accidentally pushes down on it. Nothing happens. So um, Sakurai and Faroo just start shooting the dynamite because Kong picks right now to to start waking up because I guess the, the waves are sort of, you know, tossing the ship aside. And, um, so Kong is waking up. So they shoot the dynamite and then his raft, in a very spectacular visual, blows up. Mm-hmm. And so Kong is loose. The way this scene ends, it just sort of fades to black. And... Mm-hmm. It's assumed that, like, the ship just sails away. But, like, Kong has just basically been exploded and survives. He's very pissed off. And he's right next to the ship. Yeah. And, and it's not like he's not good at destroying things. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I uh, I would assume Kong would just immediately tear this ship apart and kill everyone on board, you know? And but, drink like, their blood. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, that's... In the meantime, Godzilla makes his way to Hokkaido. There's this other character named Fujita. He's Sakurai's
1: sister's boyfriend. And Sakurai's sister has gone to Hokkaido right, because, looking for because him. Because
0: Fujita's plane crashed because he I guess he flies the commuter jet home from work. <laughs> and this is like a day ago that this happened and it crashed in like you know, the majority of the people on board were killed, and she doesn't know, you know, she assumes Fujita is dead, but she wants to, like, go check out the remains or whatever, (laughs) maybe identify or whatever, so she goes to Hokkaido, and then as soon as she goes, this is in Tokyo, she lives in Tokyo, 150 miles south of Hokkaido. She goes via train to check out if, if Fujita is one of the survivors. Fujita gets back to Tokyo and he's like, one of the neighbors it, it happens to be there, and he's like oh where's you know where's my girlfriend?" and she's like, "We heard that your plane crashed, and everyone got killed <laughs> and so she went to Hokkaido to investigate, and he's like, "Oh yeah, the plane crash that I should have been on He's like the boss kept me working late <laughs> <laughs> that's right that, like- that's why I was like I didn't tell anyone that." I didn't bother to make a phone call to tell her that I'm still alive. Just the boss kept me working late. This is like a day ago. And, uh, you know, I was just going to leisurely drive home the 150 miles and then sort of surprise. Hey, I'm still alive, you know. Hey. Hey. I didn't get killed or whatever. <laughs> so Fujita seems uncon- He like he knows about the plane crash, but he seems unconcerned <laughs> about this, which is just like. The fact that Kong is somehow alive and everyone knows he's Kick this seems like a smaller plot hole than the fact that Fujita wouldn't at least just pick up the phone and just be like, "Honey, I'm, honey, <laughs> I'm still alive, or whatever. Anyways, so she drives to Hokkaido and you have... Somehow. Somehow. Or no, no. no. <laughs> she takes a ferry
1: or something.
0: Like, well, she, okay, she's on a, a train to Hokkaido. Fujita immediately gets in his car and somehow drives his car to Hokkaido to intercept her train, which I, mathematically we can only assume that he's driving at least 200 miles an hour. Mm. He gets there just as Godzilla shows up. He destroys the train Fujita's girlfriend manages to escape. And Fujita sort of shows up at at the, the right moment, saves her. It's a wooded area, sort of a kind of a valley, I guess you'd call it, with a, a bunch of trees. And he sort of maneuvers his car into some foliage as Godzilla walks by. And I don't know. Th- this scene for me was always sort of scary because it was like – it was almost like a Jason movie or or like – it was almost like Friday the 13th because it's just... When you get it down to its bare essentials, it's just her in the woods with Godzilla. Like yeah. sort of cubbing towards her. And like, you know, Godzilla is not evil per se. In fact, according to Professor Arnold Johnson from mm. the United World <laughs> News, he only has the brain the size of a marble, uh, which we find out in this film. So he is sheer brute force. Mm-hmm. So he's not... Evil, per se, is just like a hurricane that you can
1: aim. but uh, Which is why Hannah Arendt wrote that essay, The Balinity of Godzilla. <laughs>
0: right. So, like, they just hide out in the woods, and Godzilla uh, walks on by. And I, I always remember that scene being kind of scary to me, because it was like... It, it really addressed the, the sort of primordial fear, which is ignored in basically... In a lot of Godzilla movies, we're just like Godzilla is so big, he's so powerful that like he wouldn't necessarily mean to kill you, or would even know what's happening. But like you would be like an insect to him, and he might you might accidentally get his attention, and it would be nothing for him to kill you. You know, so it's like just don't just take yourself out of the equation. It's like when you go over to a friend's house and they have a pit bull who's, like, insane. And then your friend's just like, oh, don't worry about Rust pit. You know, <laughs> he's been trying. He won't bite your face off, you know. And, and like, so you have to put your trust in the dog. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. I don't want to hand over that control to the dog, you know. I'm a human. I want the control in my hands or whatever. It's the same thing. It's like it's like you just want to take yourself out of the equation, you know. It's just like if you can hide from Godzilla, probably a good idea. <laughs> just have him walk on by <laughs> you know w- within 5 minutes he'll be like 3 miles away yeah <laughs> This is king kong's arc yeah in the movie he is afraid of fire the mm-hmm. first time uh he meets godzilla and because godzilla you know blasts him sakurai and Fru and mr taco are there uh watching it mr taco informs the authorities that his company represents king kong in the yes. fight
1: which in a normal movie would get him arrested right
0: <laughs> it is it is the best line of the film My company represents Kong. You know, it's like, that's amazing. Um, No, it's my company represents King Kong. Or like, he's under my sponsorship. Sponsorship. yeah. Which is like, um, amazing. (laughs) Godzilla shoots his flame breath at at, uh, Kong. And Kong is a little bit burned. And... Yeah. And yeah, and and, and Sakurai says it's more like fighting a flamethrower. Yeah. Kong just sort of kind of looks at his, his fur that's been sort of singed. And then kind of goes away, sort of defeated. And they kind of play this aw shucks music, you know. And then that's it. And then it really goes into military plan mode. And there's several attempts (laughs) that the military has to, to, to defeat Godzilla. None of them work.
1: No. No, and uh, and they're and they're very kind of like uh, they're pretty
0: complicated. Yeah. And they and, take a lot of screen time, and I can't describe all of them to you.
1: we'll, we'll just put the phrase "wily e. coyote-ish." Yeah, and yeah, definitely explain everything. They're, they're,
0: yeah, they're very you know Warner Brothers Roadrunner esque. Um,
1: like in later movies, they get more <laughs> creative and almost they, they make a little more sense in later films, they almost like the original. But th- this is just, you know, trap holes and. Yeah,
0: like and tra- trapping Godzilla in an enormous pit and then yeah. setting off dynamite next to him. <laughs> probably not going to work. First of all, you can probably just, you don't need the pit, just set off dynamite next to him. That'll probably do the trick. I mean, of course, it won't because it's Godzilla and you shoot him point blank with tanks and it does nothing. But whatever, the yeah. Japanese defense force has to keep itself occupied. They exactly. have to look as though they're trying. Exactly. I think, or know. they'll still lose their funding. Yeah. <laughs> what one thing they do manage to pull off is they string up a line of high tension wires around Tokyo, and that manages, once you know it, to keep Godzilla. Out. This isn't really a problem before this film or after it, but in this movie, Godzilla is injured or doesn't really like high tension wires that much, so he stays out of uh, Tokyo. Is this what you got from this as well? I mean, yeah, sort of yeah, yeah.
1: He, he doesn't. They they make it clear that he does not like uh, electricity in this movie. Which doesn't make sense in the terms of the series, but it makes perfect sense in the terms of pulp science fiction. Yeah. You know, it's like the one-armed swordsman. Everything conveniently works around the fact that this guy does not have one arm. So everything works around the fact, in this case, that Godzilla doesn't like electricity, but King Kong apparently feeds off of it.
0: Yeah. So... Kong does not gets stopped by this blockade. He breaks through it. He actually feeds off of the electricity and becomes like a supercharged Kong and proceeds to go into
1: Tokyo... He basically does what King Kong does. He smashes a few buildings and then, of course, inevitably picks up a train, which coincidentally has the girlfriend who was in the other train right. that was nearly destroyed by Godzilla. This same character
0: is menaced by both Kong and Godzilla in one movie. Yeah. That She is extremely unlucky. That's like... Precursor to Final Destination. Man. She's bad luck, basically. <laughs> at that point, you you don't you keep her around for another week. Mothra will probably show up. So just like you know, get rid of her. Kong attacks Tokyo. Gets the girl. Grabs onto her in in his hand, and uh, sort of lackadaisically tosses aside the train car that he scoops her out of, killing everyone else <laughs> in the in that train car. Okay, oops, oops you know, nonchalantly, ah, boom, dead. Um, he has the girl at his head, climbs the Diet building, and at this point, they initiate what is known as, very creatively titled, Operation Kong. Yes. Uh, where they somehow get a airborne version of the Soma juice, which, if you'll remember, knocked out Kong back on the island. Yes. And it's Sakurai and, and Taco's idea to put the Soma in rocket heads and launch it over uh, Kong exploded over him and play back the recording of the the song from Faroe Island knock him out and you know and that's that's what they do apparently they did record that song yeah. they explode the juice they play the song uh Sakurai does a a drum solo Kong gets knocked out and they they sort of have a a meeting of the minds, which includes the the premier of Tokyo, and uh, army generals, and then these people from Pacific Pharmaceuticals who are led into this meeting for reasons undetermined.
1: Yes, despite all the security and high tech equipment, the, these guys can just walk in. <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: You know, the, you know, the fate of Tokyo, Japan, and perhaps the entire world at stake. <clears throat> the, these you know, advertising executives have a uh, have a key part in this uh, second part of this plan, when clearly they should have been arrested by now. Um, <clears throat> anyways, what follows is the most hilarious and, and awesome plan in any of these films, and it's basically just... Kong is now knocked out. He's on the ground. They're just going to take this wire that's super strong that was introduced in the first act for seemingly no reason, tie up Kong to these balloons and airlift him to wherever Godzilla is. He happens to be near Mount Fuji and just drop King Kong onto Godzilla and hope that they fight until both of them are dead. (laughs) And this is the plan.
1: Which is exactly what my parents did when when we were kids. They they'd put me... (laughs) And my brother is in one room and just are like, okay, sort out your differences. <laughs> right, we'll be right. over here. <laughs> we'll
0: come back for the bodies. We'll come back for the bodies later. And, and in fact, the premiere actually says, you know, think of it, Kong versus Godzilla. If we are lucky, both will die. <laughs> this plan is awesome. This plan makes so much sense and is so, like, practical and is, like... This is immediately, if this, for whatever reason, actually happens in our reality, this is definitely what they should do. Because it, like, leads to the most spectacular and awesome results possible, you know? Like, of course, you should just drop one monster onto the other and, like, force them to fight for no reason <laughs> other than, you know, a strategic military maneuver. Because it's early on in these movies, and these monsters, they're not searching each other out, they're they're just sort of minding their own business and they they sort of cross paths one time but they're not you know it's not like they're talking to one another and like deciding who's going to fight who and whatever they're just animals at this point they're just giant animals so like i don't know it's just awesome that they just drop them on them and like that that's when the end fight <laughs> uh ensues and it is amazing very amazing it's uh yeah, it's it's very well played out. Um, Kong sort of gets his butt kicked for a while.
1: And this is where Kong, the, the, at least in the American version, they mentioned his intelligence. This is like where, you know, you see the difference between the thinking animal and the animal of brute force. Right. You know, so you have these two different animals with two different ways of perceiving... Territory fighting, you see them fight. Just like it's like Balance of Terror in Star Trek. You know, right. you see the Earth versus the
0: the, the, the
1: Romulans, you right. know.
0: And it's it's a great fight. It's very physical, it's very you know in the in the latter films a lot of the monsters have sort of like lasers and missiles and all sorts of crap that they shoot at each other, and it's not it's not very personal. This is Personal, You know, this is just like a old-fashioned smackdown where they are literally just hip-checking one another and, you know, they're just performing wrestling moves. But it's still, it's not to the choreographed insanity level because this was still really the first time they were doing this well. And so, like, all of it was so new, sort of. So the, the big sort of show-stopping move is, of course, Kong is kind of down for the count. And uh, Godzilla whips him with his tail right directly in the face for like, you know, two minutes or whatever, knocking him cold. And then, then Godzilla roasts him so, like, it looks like what looks like a nuclear bomb envelops Kong and flame. Or whatever, so it's like Kong's definitely dead, you know. But then but there's then, a
1: thunderstorm. Then there's
0: a thunderstorm. <laughs> and it immediately shoots King Kong in the face with lightning <laughs> and restores his strength to a superpower. Now. This is where I'll I'll go ahead and explain this. In the original Willis O'Brien script, King Kong versus Frankenstein, the roles for the fight were somewhat swapped, okay? So it was supposed to be Frankenstein getting struck by lightning. Of course, Frankenstein would have... That makes perfect sense. He would get strength from lightning. You know, he's, he's powered by electricity. So, like, a lot of that stuff is still in the script, but it's King Kong getting his power... And I just want folks to know that's because that character was supposed to be Frankenstein initially. So like that's awesome, clearly. So anyways, Kong now charged up with electricity, grabs Godzilla by his tail, whips him around. Whips him
1: around. He could barely hold him <laughs> right. barely hold his own, and suddenly he just gets the super Oh Right.
0: And and whips him around and and they both fight each other and it's it's just a such an awesome fight! They end up knocking down a castle, sort of the climax of it, and
1: which seems to be a theme in in, in the, the, yeah. the the these past uh, three films. Going into the the next one, right? Mothra. Right.
0: Um, they have a way of zeroing in on these castles for their yeah. fights. I think they <laughs> like the aesthetics, and they like the monsters actually enjoy destroying these <laughs> castles, and so they they really find a way. They sort of, you know kind of shoehorned into the fight one of them sort of walks onto one side of the castle the other one is on the other side and they sort of destroy their way through the castle to one another you know which is sort of like when i was watching it as a kid i was like why does he just walk around to the other side yeah. of the castle well, it seems like that would be much easier than just like destroying the whole castle and then uh tackling him, which is what he does uh, Kong tackles Godzilla and they both fall into the ocean. And in the Japanese version, there is a kind of a mild tidal wave and there's some, you know, some foam and stuff that comes up. That's pretty much it. That's the end of the fight. In the American version, John Beck didn't think that was exciting enough. He felt that the audience was a little bit cheated. So he did edit in some footage from the end of The Mysterians, The Earthquake, which Universal International owned uh, because they had distributed The Mysterians. So they owned that footage. So John Beck put that footage—the footage of this this earth, sort of there's a there's a tidal wave that comes ashore. It's like a giant mudslide, and then they, you see some more traditional uh, Japanese buildings get destroyed by this um, very big earthquake or whatever. Which oh, to me always sort of was like kind of a satisfying climax, where it's like, oh, well, the fight's so big now; they are literally shaking the planet, mm-hmm. and like. You know that's how that's how real this has gotten, and um, and then you know Kong in both versions pops up uh, and heads back to to Faroe Island, and that's it. They've uh, you know that that's the end of the uh, the fight, and uh, the next logical scene is definitely a police officer be like, "That was very exciting, Mister Taco," and then it's just slapping handcuffs on him and taking him to a, a federal prison or, and or an insane asylum.
1: Yeah. Maybe, but preferably both.
0: Yeah. Um, um, so anyways, that's, that's the end of, the, that's the end of the film.
1: And what Whew. a great film, too. Like, this is, this is, uh, as I mentioned before, this is like the beginning of the franchise portion of Godzilla. Godzilla becomes a franchise, and, uh, we will now be getting into the further, more creative and <laughs> interesting movies yes. of the series. interesting.
0: They, uh. You know, they this one came out and it was like, okay, let's make this into a series about Godzilla fighting other monsters. You know, what have we got? And and because um, they they wanted to keep it going with more King Kong movies, Toho even announced King Kong versus Godzilla, the continuation mm-hmm. that was supposed to come out the next year, but nothing ever happened with that because I think. By that time, Universal had sort of stirred and was just sort of like, "Oh wait a minute, you know we we there's some still some money behind the name of king kong and and I think that was it. It was just sort of a one time thing so you've seen this film when 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 did you like what did you think of it when you first saw it?
1: Well, I had seen other Godzilla films by this point, but I remember before I had seen any. Godzilla film I had seen the cover of a VHS of this when I was uh, visiting my uncle's place in Canada and it, it just you, you always knew as a kid who Godzilla was and yet I had never actually seen the movies at this point and I think it was after just seeing that cover but not being able to see the movie that later encouraged me to go to my local video store and just check out a Godzilla film just to just to satisfy my curiosity and i think as you had mentioned before this is it, this is the name King Kong versus Godzilla that's even if you've never seen it just the legacy of this film and of the title it just really brings the idea of clash of the two big titans right
0: when i was younger it was my favorite i think it's certainly the one i've watched the most it's a classic what can i say and they tried to remake it in 1992, but uh, Universal would not allow them. Wouldn't, wouldn't allow the the rights for for Kong. Kong has never appeared in any of the go- the numerous Godzilla fighting games that there are, which is a real shame because he's like one of the key characters you would really want to control when you're fighting those other guys. After these movies, you know, you get King Kong escapes, but King Kong escapes was not based off of the film King Kong. It was more. Uh, the good people at uh, Bass and Rankin Animation who were responsible for Frosty the Snowman and uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, they had a King Kong cartoon series in the 60s. And that, the rights specifically to that is what Toho based uh, King Kong Escapes on. So it's it's a different universe entirely. So that's really not a sequel and that was a one-shot thing. So... This is sort of Kong's only, really foray into uh, into the Godzilla verse, which kind of makes it better in a way. Um, anyways, thank you for listening. Any closing thoughts, Nate? Nope, We're oh, good. <laughs> all right. What said is said. What said is said. King Kong can't make a monkey out of us. <laughs>